The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I'm super excited about today's guest. Much is going on this week that we're recording, from the long-awaited infrastructure package getting um, the support it needed to make it through the Senate, to the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. There has been much to unpack, and I couldn't have picked a better guest to do that with than Charles Hernick from the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, or CRESS, as we call them. Charles will break down for us what's in the infrastructure package for climate and clean energy, and he talks about the Growing Climate Solutions Act, a pet project of his. We'll also discuss efforts on Capitol Hill to bring more conservative lawmakers into the climate fold. Listeners, let's get right to it. Stay tuned for my conversation with Charles Hernick. Welcome back, listeners, with our dear friend of the pod, someone who I hear listens to it maybe on his morning jog sometimes, our friend Charles Hernick from Crest. Charles, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. It's a pleasure to be with y'all. So for our listeners who aren't familiar what Crest does, I thought you could just take a moment to talk about your mission and how you got engaged. Sure. Well, we're a conservative organization focused on all of the above clean energy solutions. And really, our comparative advantage has been um, raising the profile of clean energy technologies, new technologies and and policy solutions that are market friendly and really oriented at uh, fostering corporate leadership here in the United States, Uh, introducing those technologies and concepts to Republican lawmakers and then elevating the profile of those Republican lawmakers um, in the good work that they're doing, because I think that that's one challenge for, for our party uh, is that that we've our good deeds have often been overlooked. And so it's been a critical part of our mission to make sure that credit is given where credit is due, but that we also uh, nudge along the next batch of clean energy policies and actions that will uh, have a, a beneficial impact on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and tackling the climate problem. And we've really reached a turning point. And so I'm, I'm happy that uh, we're talking now. Uh, there's a lot of good news uh, on the horizon and in the rearview mirror. For sure. So what would you say is the most impactful policy that is on the books to date that relates to clean energy and, and reduces emissions? I think that an often overlooked policy, is, and the, the truth of the matter is that the U.S. tax code has actually been one of the primary drivers for deployment of clean energy technology and actually helping uh, to to get nascent industries into the mainstream. And it it was energy tax credits uh, that were put into place in the early 90s. Uh, And this is one where Chuck Grassley in Iowa takes a lot of credit uh, for helping to make sure that solar and wind uh, investment and production tax credits uh, were established. And that's helped. We're at a point now Um, decades later, where wind power and solar power without subsidies can uh, be cost competitive 
with natural gas. And those three technologies are almost always going to be the cheapest source of electricity anywhere in the United States and more and more anywhere in the world. And so that's a, a critical view where, uh, you know, a market-friendly approach, uh, a tax incentive, so using a carrot, not a stick, um, has had a tremendous impact here in the United States and globally. Well, I think wind is a really interesting example because, and the statistic I'm sure has changed since um, what I'm about to repeat, but I remember at one point hearing that 80% of the wind power generated in the U.S. came from districts that were represented by Republicans, congressional districts. And so to me right there, you just have the great, a great example of how this is a technology that can be bipartisan because it's in the best interests of those congressional districts to keep pursuing and generating more wind. And then um, you have the buy-in from your congressional delegation because they've seen the success story. And it might be more than 80% today. I know Texas, for example, number one wind state in the country. Um, yep. Probably not to Mr. Grassley's um, amusement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing is that you look at, you look across America, uh, and there are a lot of uh, natural spaces or farmed lands, um, or even federal lands, where we can be looking at different types of resources that we can utilize. Um, sometimes lands are best put in for conservation, sometimes it's going to be best for agricultural purposes. But more and more, and I've talked to a number of farmers that have had a lot of success doing both. Uh, so growing their crops and then um, on an acre or the corner of, a, a, uh, of an acre of land, they put it down a wind turbine. And I met with one gentleman who was in Iowa and, you know, he was presented with the opportunity. I mean, whether it was an opportunity at first, he, he didn't really know. He just wanted to test. So he put a couple wind turbines in the corner of his uh, farm and it turns out that it was putting up about a, you know, an extra thousand dollars per turbine in his pocket per year. And so he was, you know, he liked that, uh, put a couple more down and then realized that this was a surefire pathway to be able to put um, two of his daughters into college uh, and, and pay for all of it. And so this is one where it's we're diversifying American incomes. Uh, and for the folks who work America's farmlands and, and rangelands and forest lands, there are great opportunities uh, to generate power. Um, one area where Crest has been very active, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about this, is in growing climate solutions. So looking at how we can uh, sequester carbon. So whether it be carbon sequestration or electric power generation, um, in a lot of rural and red parts of America, there are opportunities to um, take the climate challenge and turn it into an economic opportunity. And it's something that we're very excited about. Well, and, and you brought it up, the Growing Climate Solutions Act is definitely something I wanted to um, discuss today because it is this really wonderful opportunity to engage um, the agriculture community, farmers, rural America. And, and to what you were just saying, there is no one size fits all, right? So we have right. to find the ways for everyone across the country and the world to reduce emissions. But talk a little bit about your involvement with Growing Climate Solutions, because I just think it's a great example of how we can bring um, bipartisan interests together to achieve something that will have meaning and, and be uh, effective. Yeah, thanks, Chelsea. And the Growing Climate Solutions Act has been a personal project for, well, a long time for me. And I, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, I studied ecology. Uh, and so I've been thinking about and, and looking at the climate 
uh, challenge for several decades now. And it's really uh, a big deal in my mind that we were able to gain bipartisan support for the Growing Climate Solutions Act. And I think that's an important point. Um, Crest, we're a conservative organization and we work predominantly with Republicans, but it's a part of our thesis that any durable clean energy bill or any durable climate legislation needs to be bipartisan by definition. And so when the Growing Climate Solutions Act passed out of the Senate by a margin of 92 to eight, we were very impressed with that level of bipartisanship and really the fact that more Republicans voted for this bill than Democrats is instructive uh, in terms of how far the party has come and, and where that opportunity for leadership is. And maybe if I can uh, just take a minute to talk about what the bill is and what it does sure, for, for, sure. yes. for your listeners who, who might not be familiar. Um, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, farmers, they're in the business of, of, you know, they're growing corn, they're growing soybeans, they're raising cattle, they're doing whatever it is with their land that has made them money or made their families money for, for sometimes generations. Um, but when we look at a, a patch of land, there are ways to optimize it for agricultural output. Um, but as any farmer knows, soil, uh, soil carbon is a big part of their calculus. Um, and there are other activities that they could do to capture methane to increase uh, soil sequestration or just to plant trees. I think everybody knows that if it, you know, a tree captures carbon dioxide and, and sequesters it and puts it into the roots and into the tree itself. And what the Growing Climate Solutions Act does is on a voluntary basis, farmers have the opportunity to work with um, extension services through US Department of Agriculture that they're already familiar with uh, and that they've been working with for some time and so on a voluntary basis to get more education on how they can sell carbon credits really as a commodity, just like anything else that they're selling and producing on the farm. And the folks that are buying these credits, and this is not news to, you know, to anyone who's been picking up a newspaper recently, there's, it seems like every day, every week, there's another company that is making a bold commitment to reduce their greenhouse gases achieve net zero by mid-century, do these things that their consumers are interested in seeing to tackle the climate problem. Um, and a lot of times they can reduce emissions on their own, uh, focus on energy efficiency, switch to renewables, um, but sometimes they can't. And sometimes they're still uh, a little bit left over and they need to purchase carbon credits to essentially pay someone else uh, to remove the carbon for them. And it works because climate change is a global problem. Uh, carbon dioxide goes up into the atmosphere and affects uh, really everyone in the world equally. And so it means that there's an opportunity for American farmers, rangeland managers, and foresters to participate in these carbon markets, again, on a voluntary basis, and enter into contracts and change their land management practices as they see fit and as they can determine on the most local level, at the farm level. So it's a very empowering policy, and I think it's for that reason um, that we were able to garner as much bipartisan support as we could. It's a voluntary program. It's about empowering people. It's about education. Uh, and that was very attractive to conservatives and Republicans that we were working with. But it has the chance to really do a lot. It could be powerful environmental policy, it could be powerful climate policy. And that's something that uh, many Democrats uh, were eager to support as well. And so I think that we found a good way to thread the needle. The same needs to be done for other sectors. Uh, we, could, we could find opportunities in, in heavy industry uh, to be able to work with the same types of voluntary transactions and focus more on, on uh, transparency and accountability and carbon accounting. 
So there's certainly more to be done. And obviously this bill still needs to pass the House. It needs the president's signature to become law. But we're very encouraged by this first step that the Senate has taken and uh, enthusiastic about the level of Republican support that we did see. Well, we're super enthusiastic about Senator Braun and his role in crafting that bill, as well as his role in the Senate Climate Solutions Caucus that he co-runs with Senator Chris Coons from Delaware. And just think that when you have a senator like Senator Braun from Indiana, you know, a very traditional red state being so gung-ho about climate legislation, it really is a game changer, I think, for the work that you and I do. Um, I wanted to pivot if we could. It's so for listeners, you know, we record these early. This isn't live. The day that Charles and I are talking, the infrastructure package that has been worked on for, I don't know, it's been infrastructure week for like 250 weeks or something like that. A long time. No one's so, counting. Wait, so, everyone's counting. I don't know. Everyone's counting. Um, but the votes are there for this package to clear the Senate. It does not, again, as Charles was just saying about the Growing Climate Solutions Act, still several steps in the process before the ink is dry on this baby. But with that said, what in this infrastructure bill in its current form, are you excited about from a clean energy climate perspective? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about. Some of it is that it um, specifically funds some of the programs that were authorized and reforms that were made at the end of 2020, the Energy Act of 2020, um, which accounted for $34 billion in additional tax incentives. And so I, I mentioned the power of tax incentives earlier um, but then also there was another envelope that was created for um, for new Department of Energy spending um, on pilot projects and things like that. And a lot of that money is going to come through in this infrastructure package. So that's very uh, exciting to see. Um, more funding for carbon capture, utilization and storage, I think, is a big uh, item for us that we are uh, tracking and, and very much in, encouraged by. Uh, and then also permitting reforms. Uh, and it looks that that there is um, some emphasis on uh, streamlining uh, permitting to help assure that folks that are applying for large infrastructure projects, there's a program called Fast 41, um, that assures that a private sector developer gets a response from the federal government uh, within a two-year timeline, uh, and that a special uh, federal agency helps to coordinate and navigate what is a very thick federal bureaucracy for projects. And I, I think that I don't want to come across as, you know, we're, we're looking for ways for folks to cut corners or to, to short guard or to, to short environmental safeguards. That's not it at all. Really what we're looking for is an opportunity for folks to be able to get a quick up or down uh, response from the federal government and really build some of the major transmission infrastructure, offshore wind power that we know that this country needs. And, and we're setting benchmarks States are setting benchmarks for 2030, 2035. Uh, the, the president has a, a very ambitious proposal. Um, members of Congress look at mid-century, and I think there's kind of consensus on, on the mid-century targets. But if it takes seven years or 10 years to permit a new project, boy, that time gets uh, eaten up pretty quickly. Uh, and so we're, we're very excited about some of these um, uh, proposals that will help uh, projects move quickly on a, on a short timeline. There's obviously more to do, um, but the focus on direct air capture, uh, carbon capture, utilization and storage, 
this is going to be more of the type of industry that we need to see created to take carbon and to take climate change and make it. Um, it's going to be a problem, but if it is an economic opportunity where folks can be building uh, the things that surround us out of carbon that's directly captured out of the atmosphere or putting it into useful products or putting it underground, we will be doing a lot to tackle climate change on the timeline that we know we really need to. We now continue on the Eco Rights Speaks podcast. Visit republicen.org online to sign up and stand with us. Um, I wanted to pull back a second because you brought up the Energy Act of 2020, which we both know had a lot of great policies for climate and clean energy. We have this infrastructure package that's moving from a strategic vantage point. Do you think it's easier to pass these climate nuggets in greater kind of bigger bills that maybe aren't directly focused on climate change than it is to kind of push through a standalone piece of legislation? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and I think that it, we need to be taking a both and approach um, because it's one where what's, what's come together as this major infrastructure package is really hundreds of little bills um, that have been developed on a standalone basis, vetted through committees. And same and, with an energy bill. And right? our democratic process, yeah. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of assuring that we're, we're using the time on the clock wisely to advance and vet smaller proposals. If they can pass on a one-by-one -one basis, great. My, that's my hope for growing climate solutions. Right. But if it needs to get swept up into a bigger package, mm -hmm. um, because that's just the way that the Senate is doing its business, that's certainly been the trend over the past decade for the Senate to pass bigger packages and fewer um, standalone bills. Um, you know, but, but that's where, uh, we need to be pursuing both options and, and really, uh, working on all the good ideas, seeing where there's bipartisan support, um, and, and traction, and then, um, trying to advance those in both chambers. Uh, and I'm a big fan of doing that as opposed to taking executive action, because I think that's the real challenge is that, um, executive action while expedient, um, is reversible. It's, um, political by definition, um, and tends to alienate, uh, folks on the other side of the aisle, um, even when it was good policy. And I think that was a key challenge with President Trump's uh, NEPA reforms and focus on uh, federal one decision. That two-year timeline that I was talking about was a part of that and it cut across agencies and for all projects. But that was out on day one uh, when Biden came in. And that, that was negative for a lot of transmission and offshore wind and, and other major clean energy projects. But because it was made into a political hot potato, that wasn't beneficial for us in the long run. And so my hope is that Congress can fix some of those things through this infrastructure package. I, I'm sort of riffing here from my notes that I prepared for our conversation, but I do have in my heart somewhere this little theory. So when I worked on the Hill, it was the day of earmarks. Mm -hmm. And if you were trying to get a policy through, and I worked on Army Corps of Engineers stuff, so all the water projects, big restoration projects went you know, through EPW committee, and I was the point person for that, those projects. And if somebody was opposed, then you just gave them something that they wanted in your bill, right? You gave them an earmark. Yep. And so that was kind of a way to make both sides, you know, not even necessarily sides of the aisle, but members, specific members happy. Um, actually, with the bills I worked on, there tended to be more House Senate 
infighting than there was Democrat Republican infighting. But um, anyway, that just occurred to me that maybe it's when you have a bigger package that is composed of, you know, these little bills that, as you said, they've had hearings, they've maybe even been marked up, they've gone through some Mm -hmm. part of the process. You know, is Senator X going to support a bigger package because they got in these bills that they are supportive of, champions of, co-sponsors of, when you know, maybe there's some other things in that package that they're not totally keen on, but they're interested in seeing their piece go through. So just a, a little um, diversion there from our discussion that occurred to me. As no, I, I think that's an important, <laughs> I think that's an important point, Chelsea. And when we look at this energy package, um, you know, the, the Fast 41 component has its uh, major advocates, and it also has folks that um, may be detractors uh, from it. But when you enter in more elements, carbon capture, alternative fuel vehicle infrastructure, when you look at heavy industry and addressing some of the supply chain issues that we have in this country that have been, I don't know, maybe we put an exclamation point on some of that throughout this pandemic. When you see more of those uh, remedies in the bill, there's more consensus uh, that, that you're going to get. Um, is is every provision important to every senator in every state? Definitely not. And that's why it wasn't a unanimous vote. Um, but there is a, a, a plenty of bipartisan uh, momentum uh, that is pushing this from the Senate into the House. And so my hope is that uh, folks in both parties will be able to see what's good in the proposal, in the package uh, as a whole. Uh, and even if not all the wins are for your district, um, that there are enough wins for your district and enough wins for the U.S. economy writ large that it's worth getting behind. So before I let you go, there were two other little things I wanted to to pick your brain about. One being the IPCC report, their latest report, which is out this week. And I know I said pick your brain, but huh. um, we could chat about that. And also maybe even in the context of um, Mr. John Curtis, Congressman John Curtis's conservative climate caucus that he founded earlier this, um, what season are we in summer? So I think it was the beginning of the summer, right? That he rolled that out and now over 70 members. So if we're looking at Mr. Curtis's caucus, maybe through the lens of the IPCC, does it help or hurt? And like, I know in the past at Republic EN, we talk a lot about not wanting to sound alarmist, but I have to admit as, as a citizen, as a resident of earth. I am a little feeling that sense of urgency, especially with this latest report. So how do we take that and help bring some of those members that are on that conservative caucus who are newer to the climate discussion, the climate conversation, and act in a way that is going to be at a pace that allows us to kind of squeak in with that silver, the silver lining of the report, right, is that we haven't blown all our time yet. We still have some time to act, but we kind of need to be efficient with our time, I think. That's absolutely correct. And I think that I'm, I'm encouraged by the momentum that I've seen. And I think you're right. We need to use the time that we have on the clock very wisely. Um, The Conservative Climate Caucus that you mentioned that was launched um, by Congressman Curtis from Utah is, um, you know, it's not just a a one man show. This is one where this was a a caucus that was uh, blessed and and vetted by uh, Republican leadership and has a lot of support. You you mentioned over 70 uh, Republican members, which which is over a third of the U.S. House uh, Republican members. It makes it one of the biggest caucuses 
um, in D.C. So that's that's a big deal um, and just goes to show that Republicans are interested in learning more. It's not the only thing out there. Um, uh, Leader McCarthy has established a House Energy, Climate and Conservation Task Force that is looking out a little bit further. That's more policy oriented, whereas the caucus is more education oriented. But it's things like this IPCC report that need to be factored in and, and looked at. I think that I forget which number report this is, but it's been several decades that Six. I've been. I think this is the sixth one. The, the sixth report. So they've been doing these reports for decades. It's never been like a good news report <laughs> since the beginning. So if you're looking for good news and warm and warm fuzzies, this is not the place to yeah. go ever. <laughs> but that's um, not to say that there aren't good nuggets in it. And, and I will admit I haven't had the chance to you know read all of it. But um, the top level is consistent with what we knew was going on and consistent with actually the founding clause of um, the Conservative Climate Caucus, which is that humans are having an impact on climate. There's something that we can do about it. And I think that that's an important starting point, not just for Republicans in this caucus, but for uh, people everywhere. What I'm encouraged by is not just the formation of these, you know, discussion and policy and education groups uh, that are official, you know, Republican Party, you know, groups, but by the momentum that we're seeing in corporate America, it's over over 70 percent of Americans are serviced by an energy utility that has a commitment to net zero by mid-century. Wow. So that's good for, yeah. for feeling good about turning on your lights at home. When it comes to um, other sectors, you're seeing United Airlines, Delta Airlines uh, making goals to do the same for their industry so that folks will be able to fly around the world and be able to do so in a way that is uh, not harmful uh, to the climate. When it comes to aviation jet fuels and how to decarbonize that, there's a long way to go on research and development, but the interest is there and companies are putting money uh, behind it. And when they're not able to reduce their emissions right away, they're purchasing offsets and that's where that growing climate solutions bill uh, really does matter for for making those opportunities for American farmers. Um, No matter what the sector of the economy is, whether it be finance, whether it be heavy industry, you're seeing more and more leadership. And that's where this, this caucus, this task force are going to provide an opportunity to really update Republican legislators on what are the current trends? What are the current cost points? Not everybody knows that solar and wind are so cheap. Um, not everyone knows that U.S. natural gas has the lowest carbon footprint compared to you know, Russian and, and other types of natural gas. So when it comes to what kind of natural gas the European Union should be importing, um, or other countries should be importing, it's it's worth taking a look at who's going to have the lowest emissions profile. Are there still emissions associated with natural gas? Absolutely. But there's a big difference uh, between American natural gas, which uh, is using state-of-the-art technology, uh, where companies are focusing a lot on capturing methane on a voluntary basis to um, assure that their product, um, well, number one, that they're, they're capturing all of the sellable commodities that they can, but also so that they're able to achieve some of their goals. You're seeing more and more oil and gas majors uh, from Shell to Total to BP, uh, and even rumors of ExxonMobil looking to achieve net zero by 2050. And that's using a blend of technologies. That's using uh, carbon capture utilization and storage, as I mentioned, 
um, but other technologies too to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the at the point of emission uh, upstream so that it can be sequestered uh, and focusing on efficiency all along the pipeline. And as we as we look at the policies that we need to achieve um, the goal and solve the problems identified by the IPCC and other scientists in the United States, there's a tremendous opportunity. And, and to get back to your point, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of money to be made in solving this because it's what people want. Yeah. And I think that's where we shouldn't we need to think about it. We need to be very conscious about climate change, but we shouldn't panic and we shouldn't overthink it. And we should utilize market-based mechanisms to assure that clean energy supply, that uh, products with low greenhouse gas footprints can get to customers who want it. I think it um, all goes back to what Senator Mitt Romney has said, which is that we better hope that climate change is human caused because then we can have a human generated solution for it. And you just rattled off so many great human generated solutions. <laughs> I'm feeling more hopeful than I did when when I logged into our conversation today. Charles, it has been so great to have you on the show and to talk about all these things. I feel like we could talk for another 90 minutes and barely scratch the surface. So you'll have to come back maybe after the infrastructure bill is passed and we're on whatever is next. Um, That'd be great. Be great, be great to touch base again, but thank you so much for your time and for everything you and the team at Crest does. I know whenever I see Heather Reem's name on an op-ed, that is going to be a good one. And we just appreciate having you out there as allies um, working the way you do. Well, thanks for pulling me in. It's always a pleasure uh, to listen to the podcast here and I'll be uh, staying tuned and, and happy to join you again uh, whenever I can. Good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever it is, whatever time it is, wherever you are, thanks to our listeners and thanks to you, Chelsea, for another great episode and interview this week. Yeah, I said good morning because I'm drinking coffee <laughs> as we record. But um, yes, wherever you are, whatever time you're listening, wishing you well and hoping you enjoyed that interview with Charles as much as I enjoyed having it. He was so great to talk to Price. And, you know, I know we're all kind of all in the same boat where with the pandemic, we aren't seeing people in person. And one thing that I really have missed is that CRESS, the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, holds an annual National Clean Energy Week every September. I forgot to give Charles a moment to plug it um, when we were recording, but their next National Clean Energy Week is coming up in September. You can find it on their website, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. Check it out. They always have great panels. They have lawmakers. They have people from the renewable and clean energy side, corporate interests, um, you know, they kind of run the gamut and I always learn something new and see somebody fascinating. So yeah, I don't know if it's in person or virtual this year or something tells me maybe virtual, <laughs> but, yeah. um, anyway, check it out listeners. If you want to learn more about Crest and the great work they're doing. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. All right. We have got a new addition slash segment, whatever you want to call it, that will be coming to the podcast soon. We are going to do, Chelsea, a Ask Bob Anything. It will be pretty simple. Here's how it's going to work. We will have it in this final segment for you every week. Uh, you want to ask a question of Bob? He will answer it. Anything you want to ask him. 
The way you're going to do that is you're going to go to Apple Podcasts and go to the review section. And after you leave us, hopefully a five-star review where you can put a comment in. Uh, ask your question right there. Put your question uh, have it to Bob. It can be whatever it is that you would like to ask, and he will answer it each week. It can be policy. It can be politics. It can be going back to English 1 or 2.0. It could be something that we have got going right now at Republican.org. It could be something that we're hoping to do. It could be anything that you would like to ask Bob. Bob will answer it maybe on a week where he might be tied up or vacating or something. You might We might get a fill-in from our EcoWrite team, but Ask Bob Anything will launch next week the way you will ask your question again in the Apple review. When you go to give us a review, you'll click the stars, whatever it is you want to give us, but then right after that, you can leave a comment, and that's where you can put your question. We will have it for you, the first Ask Bob Anything next week, Chelsea Anderson. You know, Bob, uh, Bob, I just called you Bob. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Obviously, I need more I did more say of a lot of Bobs right there. You said Bob's name like 20 times, and I just wanted to say, hey, listeners, if you have a question for Price, specifically about the production of a podcast, throw that question in there. If you have a question for me, throw that in there. Our focus is on Bob, but obviously, if you have a burning question for anyone on the team, we will we will find the right answer for you. Yes. So again, very simple how you do that. Again, go into the Apple Podcast Review and put your question in there. We see those. In addition, it helps everybody find this podcast. So the more comments, reviews, uh, questions, uh, it all accomplishes the same goal. It helps us become more visible and get us more listeners, which is always a good thing for you, but especially uh, us. That's right. So throw your questions up on the Apple Podcast Review. And, you know, as Price noted, give us a little five-star rating while you're there. I'm assuming if you're interested enough to ask a question, you're listening, you want to give that five-star review. And I know that often in our, if you are a member of republican.org and you get our weekly newsletter that I write every Friday, I usually have the link to Spotify. I will price my commitment right now, I will start linking Apple Podcasts so that those listeners who get the podcast from the weekend review will have a quick link and they can go on. Um, but definitely encourage you to download that um, the podcast to your phone. I get a little alert that lets me know when the podcast is live. And so it's just a nice little reminder. Oh, I can go listen to myself now. <laughs> All right, um, let, we want to let you know a couple of new members, uh, a lot of new members, but we pick uh, usually four or five to read every week, and we will do that now. Larry W. in Missouri, Charlie H. in Texas, Candy R. in Minnesota, LaDonna M. in Texas, Dennis D. in Tennessee, republican.org forward slash join. That is where you can sign on. We need you if you have not done so. Real quick, Chelsea, as we got to get out of here, who do we have up next week? Next week, we are actually, we're a little bit in flux. I have two interviews that I'm doing this week. And so it's a little, it'll be a little Russian roulette. We'll see who ends up um, being first and who ends up being second. But either our good buddy, Rob Sison, longtime eco writer, even though I'm just going to note, I don't think he likes the term eco right, but we know in his heart, he is there. He's a hunter and angler, founder of Conserve America. 
huge outdoorsman. And so we're just trying to figure out the recording time because he's been going about the mountainous West and is about to head to Alaska. So we're hoping he has Wi-Fi and can do it. Um, the other person I'm speaking to this week is a friend of you and Bob's Brian Webb. Um, so interested to learn a little bit more about Brian and the work that he does. Am I going to say this correctly? Houghton? Houghton. Houghton, Houghton College Houghton in New York. College, yep. um, where he is a professor there and teaches a course on environmental stewardship. And Bob has spoken to that class before, if I'm correct, right, Price? Brian is a great friend at Houghton College in New York. He is a incredible friend, resource, um, an eco-right uh, champion, somebody that has really helped us as a stakeholder and you know, invited Bob to speak on campus at a special seminar to his classes. Brian has just been salt of the earth, a great friend to us at Republican.org. So excited for those. We will tell you next week, we, we are going to take a week off for Labor Day. We'll fill you in on that next week, Chelsea. But until then, uh, we will talk to you then. All right. Well, be well, everyone. All right, folks. Talk to you next week. Again, download, listen, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the favorite places you get your podcasts, The Eco Right Speaks. Download, listen, subscribe. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of The Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at republicen.org. Make sure to visit republicen.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco right leader. 